Good afternoon and, and welcome to, to the Cato Institute. My name is Dalbo Rohak and I'm a policy analyst with Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity and I'll be moderating uh, this book forum um, this afternoon. Um, this forum will discuss Megan McArdle's new book, The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success. Um, as it happens, um, the economist Charles Kenny from the Center for Global Development um, published recently a book with an eerily similar title, The Upside of Down, Why the Rise of the Rest <laughs> is Good for the West. So in case you were expecting Charles Kenny here, hope you're not too disappointed. Um, the other piece of news I have, which some might find disappointing, is that our colleague Brink Lindsay, who was supposed to serve as a discussant for the book, uh, <laughs> has been stranded in Florida, and he won't be able to make it to D.C. until later this afternoon. Um, clearly, there are worse places to be stranded than Florida, and, and, and luckily, um, we have found more than an adequate uh, replacement. Um, the, the prolific blogger, independent scholar, economist Arnold Kling kindly offered to, to step in uh, on a very short notice, and, 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 and I'm extremely grateful for him to, for, for serving as a discussant. Um, Megan's book is about failure, and in the introduction in her typically modest way, um, she justifies writing a book about failure by, by writing about what she knows. Um, but there is much more to the book than that. The book really um, explores two themes, which we, I hope, touch on uh, today. The first one is that failure is a ubiquitous feature of our lives, um, and that failing well and often in a non-disastrous way is an important learning mechanism for individuals and organizations and governments. Um, the, the, the second argument is that although failure is good for us, misaligned incentives and cognitive biases can often prevent us from, from drawing the correct lessons, adjusting our behavior, uh, learning from, 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 from failure, so to speak. Um, and very often our psychological aversion to failure can can turn what would have been small, harmless failures into, into big, large-scale catastrophes. But I don't want to preempt the, 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 the talks, and I would like to just say a few words about our featured speakers today. Um, Megan was an early pioneer of blogging, and she's certainly one of the most accomplished economic journalists of her generation. Uh, she started blogging in November 2001 um, with an outlet she named Life from the World Trade Center, which did not go unnoticed for, for, uh, for, for very long. And, and, and in 2003, she joined The Economist, and subsequently she worked with The Atlantic Magazine, The Daily Beast, and more recently with uh, Bloomberg View. She was also a Bernard Schwartz Fellow um, at the New America Foundation. More importantly, she's an incredibly productive writer. She churns out dozens of meaty, thoroughly researched articles every week on topics ranging from healthcare policy, uh, technology, uh, to kitchen gadgets, which typically are my, 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 my favorite. Um, Megan's undergraduate degree is from University of Pennsylvania, and she earned her MBA at the University of Chicago. Um, Arnold is an adjunct scholar here at Cato. He is a blogger and an economist. He served on, um, on the staff of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, then worked as senior economist at, at, at Freddie Mac, 
And then in 1994, he started um, homefair.com, which was one of the first commercial websites on, on the internet, um, which sort of uh, explains uh, how he can sort of sustain him as an, as an independent uh, scholar in, 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 in those decades that, that, that followed um, the rise of, of the World Wide Web. He authored a number of books, uh, most recently the excellent uh, Three Language of Politics, which was published as an e-book, um, unchecked and unbalanced how the discrepancy between knowledge and power caused uh, the financial crisis and threatens democracy, and from poverty to prosperity, intangible assets, hidden liabilities, and the lasting triumph over scarcity, uh, written with um, Nick Schultz. Besides Econlog at the uh, Library of Economics and Liberty, he also writes his own personal blog, which everyone in this room should be following. Arnold received his PhD in economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, this forum will be organized as, as many previous fora. Uh, we'll have each of our speakers talk for roughly 20 minutes. Uh, we'll open things up for a general discussion and we'll aim to end promptly at 1.30, after which lunch will be served. And there will also be an opportunity to buy the book and I'm sure Megan will, will be happy to, to sign it for you. Now, without further ado, I'd like to turn things over to Megan. So I'll start out by talking about uh, the greatest movie disaster of all time. Uh, actually, a lot of you, there's some young folks in here who I'm sure don't remember anything much that happened before about 2005. But for those of us who have a few gray hairs that we're ardently trying to cover with dye, um, this was a movie, giant water movie, giant, giant water movie. And of course, as you know, if you're a homeowner and you know what happens when like your bathroom floods, just imagine that in a, like the kind of construction that you use for a movie set. So like a big wave came along and washed away $8 million worth of their set. It had to be rebuilt. It was, it went drastically over budget and then they raised the budget and it went over budget again. It was delayed. Uh, the stars were complaining. The media is waiting to pounce seriously running to pads, like nine months to a year before it came out, they're just chuckling with glee. They can't control it. They're all what, um, even in fact, the people internally had started saying things like, if we could just lose a hundred million dollars, uh, even the director who had pushed this has been like his dream project. Uh, finally, by the end said, I just, I put it in theaters and I just, I already knew it was going to lose a, whole lot of money and my career was going to be over. Um, it debuted in Tokyo and basically no one noticed. <laughs> Everyone was talking about other little uh, mini scandals within Hollywood. Um, and the media started uh, publishing articles to the effect that this was now the most expensive movie disaster of all times, which just goes to show why journalists should never be in charge of greenlighting movies because Titanic went on to make more money than any movie in history. <laughs> And, and you guys thought I was talking about Waterworld, right? And this is the thing, is that in fact, they're a lot closer than you think. In fact, if you look at the stats, Waterworld had a lot of advantages. For one thing, it had a movie star that someone had heard of. Titanic had Leonardo DiCaprio, who was mostly renowned for playing the mentally handicapped, and Kate Winslet, who had starred in one low-budget movie that no one had ever seen. Um, the experience of filming this movie was so grueling that Kate Winslet got pneumonia and they just had to stop production while she recovered. Um, 
Not only that, this was the second time he had done this. Does anyone remember The Abyss? It's now a cult classic. Lost it, when it actually debuted, it lost money and didn't do as well as notable films like Uncle Buck. Um, <laughs> where it was, it was substantially beaten by Uncle Buck at the box office. Ed was so grueling that Ed Harris, to this day, will actually not discuss it. Um, he just, like, when reporters ask him, he's like, I don't talk about that, and threatens to punch them. Um, no, I made that last part up. Anyway, uh, but also, it, Waterworld actually made its release date. So you want to release a big blockbuster basically in the summer. Uh, because that's when all the teenage boys are out of school. And since teenage boys aren't allowed to drink, what they do is just go to the movies and drag everyone they know and they make their little girlfriends come with them. And so you want a big, if you have a big budget movie like that, it's supposed to come out. Biggest weekend is July 4th. Um, Waterworld made its July release date. Titanic, on the other hand, just was so badly overscheduled that they had to slip it and run it at Christmas, which is usually when you wonder you're running like kid, little kid movies because that's what people do with their kids when they're home from school. <laughs> Titanic picked up an audience no one had expected. Tween Girls. Tween Girls freaked, is that, I mean, people may remember this, there were like Titanic-themed weddings and so forth, like, Tween Girls freaked out about this movie. They went, they went again, they got all their little friends to come, they made all the boys go, and the boys were like, ah, oh, there's kissing, and then the boat sank. They're like, ah, oh, the boat sank. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was, it's actually, you look at the box office for a normal blockbuster, and they make all of their, their, their money in like the first three weeks. People just kept going to see Titanic. They saw it like, 13, 14, 15 times. This is the kind of pattern you used to see with like Star Wars. No one had predicted this. No one had seen this coming. And it was basically the biggest box office ever until James Cameron outdid himself with, with Avatar. Um, we like to think that there's a plan. We like to think that, that failure comes when you didn't prepare enough or you were just not being smart in some way or you're a bad person and you did something bad and that's why you failed. But if you actually look out in the marketplace, that's not what you see. Right, so let, let me talk to you about a product that was really well planned. So old soft drink company, they've got a hot young competitor, not even that young, but like in the soft drink market, it's not that big. So they've got a competitor coming up on their, their back and Coke is really frightened because Pepsi is now, take the Pepsi challenge and everyone is buying Pepsi. And so they think they need to do something because they're about to lose their number one position. So they get their like brain trust in and the brain trust says, well, you know, Coca-Cola was invented in the 1890s and it tastes like an 1890s soft drink. Maybe we just need to change it. So they decide that maybe what they should do is uh, replace it with a newer, sweeter, uh, without the kind of lemony undertones that new Coke, that old Coke has. So they're gonna do a new Coke. And it's not entirely clear why they felt they needed to get rid of old Coke in order to do this, rather than just introduce a second Coke. Uh, but they're understandably a little bit nervous about this, so they go out and they, uh, they market test. They do the biggest market research study ever done. And the results come back. They're like, you would, people love this stuff. They can't wait to get their hands on it. It's amazing. Go. And the head of the company is only says, do it again. So they go out and they do the biggest market study in history again. <laughs> they do more market research than anyone has ever done multiple times. And it all comes back saying, New Coke is going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. We need but put it into stores for consumers to just rush the shelves, grab it all, and take it home with them. And it went on the market, and it lasted only a matter of months, and nearly just got the company with it. It's not because the people at, New Coke, were, at, at Coke were stupid. They're not. They're, they, you don't get to be the owner of the largest and most successful brand in the history of humanity by just being a bunch of morons who do any random thing that comes into your head. They weren't. 
The problem is that the question that they wanted to, that you want to ask before you go in with a new product is never the question that you can actually answer. So the question you want to ask is, when I make this product and I put it on the shelves, are people going to buy it? And are they going to keep buying it? The only question you can ask is something like the question that the new Coke market research people did, which is, if I go to a supermarket and give people a three-ounce free sample of this, will they tell me they like this better than Pepsi or Old Coke? It's not the same question. It's not even that close to the same question, but it's the best you can do. The universe is inherently an uncertain place. We like to think that we can plan our way around failure, that we can engineer it out of the system somehow, but as we just saw with the financial crisis, this is a great thing. I started as an economics reporter in 2003, and I was writing about something called the Great Moderation. <laughs> yeah, some of you, I see the laughter in the audience, right? This was the idea that the Fed was so good at its job that we were never going to have a financial crisis again. We had figured it out. We were so smart that it was now not possible. Um, oops. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the most dangerous place you ever are is when you think that you have engineered away the possibility of failure. Because not only have you not done that, you are also not prepared for anything to go wrong. So what happened with, with Coke, they took it, what, what people hadn't realized was that the, it wasn't like, do you want to drink this or do we want to drink this in a three-on sample? And by the way, a, a sweeter drink is always just going to get more people to say, I want it if you give it to them in a free sample, unless it's actually like, you know, syrup. Um, but that's not the same as wanting to drink a whole can of it or wanting to buy a bunch. But mostly what they hadn't thought about was that people might like new Coke, but they didn't like it when it cost them the option of old Coke. And suddenly they realized they loved old Coke. Maybe they didn't want to drink it all the time, but they wanted to have it. It was, you know, it's like, you don't want to find out. You just can't go to Slovakia. Maybe you've never been. <laughs> And maybe you aren't planning a trip anytime soon, but if someone was just like, never, you can never go to Slovakia, you would be upset. Um, and so actually the interesting thing is that this turned out to be great for the company. And it was great, they had done something dumb, which was they'd bet the farm, but then they did something smart, which was that they pulled this thing off the shelves, put old Coke back as quickly as they could, and it turned out that like, this actually revitalized the brand because people were reminded how much they loved old Coke. They booked their ticket to Slovakia and, and, and took that option that they'd almost lost. Um, it strikes me when I, when I read stories about entrepreneurship in magazines that all of the stories are like, genius inventor, genius, hit a genius idea, and he's been a hardworking fellow and kind of brilliant all his life, and then he just went out and did this brilliant thing, and it was brilliant, and everyone loves it and now he is standing with his arms crossed on the cover of a business magazine staring at the camera, right? Um, but then when you actually talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, that's completely not the impression that you get of how the economy works. The impression that you get is the guys who are like, yeah, so we started this company and we totally thought we were gonna do this one thing and it turned out no one wanted that, but accidentally we figured out that this other thing was really great and people loved it and now that's what we do for a living. Or we started this one thing and it was totally great and people loved it, but there was no revenue model and then we went out of business. Um, and that's what most entrepreneurs do, right? Like if you, if you take a group of people, in one study, you take a group of people with, um, they've started a successful business before, they have good VC backing, which means that they're not gonna run into an imminent cash crisis. Um, and they've got a pretty sound business, and also means that they've got a pretty sound business plan. Three times out of 10, those people will succeed. Seven times out of 10, their business will flop. They're basically like baseball players, right? Like a great batter is a guy who fails seven out of 10 times at the plate, and that's pretty much the track record for a great entrepreneur. Most things don't work, and it isn't because people are stupid, it's because the universe is uncertain. A realistic model of the universe is the universe. 
Anything smaller than that, you've got to have some simplifying assumptions, and you don't know if your simplifying assumptions are wrong. There's just no way to get around that. And so what is actually the way to entrepreneurial success, to economic success? It's iteration and experimentation. There's a great guy who's the head of user experience for Palm. He goes and does this test with uh, a bunch of different groups of people. 25 strands of spaghetti and a roll of tape make me the tallest structure that's capable of supporting an egg. Now, a lot of you have probably done some sort of team building exercise similar to this, but he wasn't interested in like whether people bonded and wore t-shirts and screamed the company cheer at the end of the day. He was interested in how they, who did better and why. So some of the people are what you would expect. Singaporean engineers do very well on this challenge. Uh, some of the people who don't do well are also who you would ex uh, uh, suspect. MBAs are like absolutely the worst. <laughs> Apparently, they spend all, we spend all of our time uh, arguing about who's going to be like in charge of writing the vision statement for Team Spaghetti. And, and don't laugh, because lawyers don't do well either. <laughs> <laughs> um, but here, the most successful group is not Singaporean engineers. It is kindergartners. And like you look at these things, the things the engineers build, it's like the Eiffel Tower. The things that the, the Singaporean engineer, the little kids build, it's like, right? Totally, they look like what happens when you give a team of kindergartners some spaghetti and some tape. Uh, so how do they succeed? Iteration and experimentation. So first of all, they're five, so they don't have any rules. They're the only group that asks for more spaghetti. <laughs> and with that, but what they did with the spaghetti is what's really powerful. They just started experimenting and they ruthlessly called what didn't work, right? If it didn't work, they threw it away and started over. Take that piece off, that, didn't, that made things worse, not better. And with that process of what Silicon Valley calls failing fast, <laughs> they actually got the best result. That is how evolution works, it's how the economy works, and it's frankly how most learning works. If you think about how you learn to play tennis, right? You don't learn to play tennis by developing an elaborate theory of tennis ball physics. If that were true, then like every year Wimbledon, right, would be won by some guy from MIT who is the world's best fast physicist. But that's not the case. You learn to play tennis by hitting the ball, and most of the time it doesn't do what you think it will, right? But then a couple of times it sort of goes in the right direction. And over time your brain learns from doing that, those rare things, that's how I should hit the ball. And you do it over and over and over. It's also how we learn to do math, right? Oh yeah. Those five ways I tried to do algebra didn't work. Apparently this one way the teacher told me about. Um, but in fact, like, why do you learn from doing problem sets over and over and over again? Because it's that repetition and trying things that don't work and calling the many, many, many ways there are to do things wrong. There's a story about Thomas Edison, which may be apocryphal, but it's a great story, that after he had spent years mucking around with light bulb filaments, trying everything from bamboo to cotton to, and getting nowhere, uh, that someone asked him, so how does it feel to have failed? He said, what do you mean failed? I know 10,000 things that do not make good filaments for incandescent light bulbs. And we laugh, and a lot of his contemporaries and later critics have said, well, if he'd had more theory and less like brute force, he would have been a better inventor. Except Thomas Edison was an amazing inventor, right? Like this guy had an amazing number of patents, and yes, there were lots of people working in his lab, but they were basically using this brute force, try, fail, try, fail, try, fail technique. Libertarians are good at this, right? This is actually, libertarians are good at letting things fail. We like letting things fail. We get happy when a company lets, when the government lets a company go bankrupt, right? Um, one thing I think we could spend a little more time talking about is what happens afterwards though. Not like we're bad on this, but it actually matters a lot. It's not just enough to say like, mama bird is throwing you out of the nest, fly, right? If it plummets, 
you don't just leave it there and wait for a wolf to eat it. Um, something has to happen to allow people to recover from failure. And this matters for two, two reasons. Um, the first reason is that if it, failure is really costly, people won't do it. Right? If getting fired meant that you automatically lost your house and all your friends and they took your children away, then probably you would be really, really conservative in your work and spend all of your time thinking about how not to get fired instead of maybe how to create value for the company. Um, also matters because when, you, when things fail badly, you tie up the most precious thing we have, which is human capital. You think about the number of hours and the amount of money that, that our parents invested in each of us it's a phenomenal investment. Each of us represents an incredible investment of technology and effort and financial capital just to get us to the point where we're reasonable adults capable of functioning in the modern world. Every time that someone fails badly, we take all of that human capital and we throw it away. So it's really, really important to think about how do we recover lost human capital from a failure? And America's often very good at this. You talk to European executives about what happens to them when they work for a company that goes, if, if they say go off and start a business that fails, and they say, I can't do that because who would want to hire me? You talk to, I was just talking to the CFO of a company that went under in 2000, and he was like, I was really worried that that would happen because he'd never been in the startup world before. It's just kind of random, ended up as the CFO, and then it went badly and he didn't have a job anymore. And he went out and people were like, this is great. You learned on someone else's dime. You have a lot of valuable information. And failure is, because as I say, failure is how we learn. Failure is a lot of valuable information. And America's really good at this in the business world. We're not so good at this with the prison system. We're much worse than Europe or almost anywhere else with the way that we have taken two million young men and basically made them unemployable um, and wrecked their lives. I mean, I'm not saying that like, they didn't do anything wrong. Most of the people in prison have done things that they shouldn't have done. Um, but it's still a phenomenal waste both of, I mean, it's a phenomenal waste for them because each human being is incredibly precious. It's also a phenomenal waste for society because those are all people who could be contributing and aren't. Um, but so like I'll close by saying that we want to think about how, how, we, how we let things fail, how we, how we help people pick themselves up afterwards. Um, and, I have an entire chapter in the book dedicated to what I think is actually the unsung hero of the American economy, which is bankruptcy. It's really good at this with the bankruptcy system. The American bankruptcy system is really unique, um, and most people don't realize this, is that the American bankruptcy system is by far the most generous in the entire world, both on the corporate side and on the personal side. It's so, it's so generous that in the, when I was covering our draconian 2005 bankruptcy reform, which I opposed, but not for the, the normal reasons of... Um, when I was covering it for The Economist, I was trying to describe what the new law said. My colleagues were like, well, of course you have to reform that. That's outrageously lax. And I was like, no, this is the draconian new law. The old one was even easier. The idea that you can just walk into a judge and be like, I brought a bunch of money. I don't have it. And the judge is like, OK, well, too bad. Debt discharged. Like, that's crazy to people. I was interviewing a guy for a completely different section of the book, a Russia expert. He's Scandinavian, and he just randomly started making fun of the American bankruptcy system in the middle of the interview um, and how ridiculous it is. You just walk in and be like, judge, I don't have any money, and judge is like, okay, that's too bad. Bye-bye uh, creditors, bye-bye debt. That seems crazy to people, and yet if you actually look at research, what you see is that states, because uh, 
in America, we vary by state and how much money you can shield from creditors. States that have more lax, more generous exemptions have more entrepreneurship. It matters a lot how we help people pick themselves up. So how do we think about failure shouldn't not hurt? And that's the kind of the mistake that a lot of European unemployment systems have made, for example, right? The idea that failure should just not be painful. And so what you see in those systems is that people will spend 10 years trying to be a steel worker in a region where there's no longer any steel foundries. And they're just kind of waiting until someone opens a steel foundry because they don't want to go out and do the brutal and unpleasant work of finding another job doing something else, especially if they're 50 years old and have a lot of capital accumulated in that. You're enabling people to make a rational short-term decision because I've been unemployed long-term and it's really terrible. And job search is the worst part of that. It feels awful to go out and be like, hey, want to reject me? And people are like, yes. Um, <laughs> So it shouldn't not hurt, because the pain is nature's way of saying, don't do that. That doesn't work. Stop. Uh, if it didn't hurt, we wouldn't stop. But you don't want the pain to be crippling the way that, say, a felony sentence now is for people where once they get out, they're pretty much unemployable, and they might as well go back to being criminals, because their alternative is maybe a, a minimum wage job. And when you look at like the success stories that come out of prison now, a distressingly high percentage of them, as far as I can tell, nearly all of them are people who are working like in a prison rehabilitation thing. You're not seeing people actually transition from, I committed a felony when I was 24 to now I'm a successful something. And there's a lot of professions that won't let them in at all. Um, that's a problem. So how, how should the pain look? It should look short. It should be short. It should not drag on for years. It should be sharp because it should hurt, even if it's not your fault. Unemployment should be unpleasant. Not because you were necessarily did something wrong to be unemployed to, in getting unemployed. Lots of people are laid off because their company is doing badly. It should be unpleasant because otherwise people won't try to leave it. And in the long run, you look at studies, being unemployed is just miserable. It's miserable in Scandinavia. It's miserable in Germany. It's not miserable because of the financial privation. It's miserable because it deprives you of an important place in society. Um, it should be in the context of a relationship that you know, you're a member of society, we want to restore you to society if that's at all possible. I mean, if you're a crazy serial killer who cannot be allowed out, that's one thing, but that describes such a, I mean, you know, it's not even worth making public policy about, right? That's like 100 people in the country. Um, and it should encourage you to move on. It should be about the future and not about the past. Um, so I will close there and, uh, and let Arnold tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> Okay, so uh, for those of you who are tuning in late and expecting to see Brink Lindsay, um, while we're enjoying the wonderful polar vortex here, poor Brink is stranded at a resort in Florida, and we all feel <laughs> very sorry for him. Um, we're taking up a collection afterwards <laughs> for him. Okay, so um, I bought a, a Kindle when it first came out, and since then I think I've bought probably a, a few a few thousand dollars worth of books. And only once have I pre-ordered a book uh, sight unseen, and that was this one. Um, and I did it because, um, well, first of all, the topic of the book, uh, it's about failure. And that's just a, a tremendous topic. It has so many facets to it. It's very stimulating. It's, uh, you know, it's just intellectually, it's a great topic. Uh, I, I could say you, you could, if you're a, an intelligent, competent writer, 
you can't fail to write a good book about failure. Um, and so I knew we had an intelligent, competent writer, and uh, so I ordered it sight unseen, and I, I have not been disappointed. What I'm going to try to do uh, with my talk is, is talk about, uh, and this is based somewhat on my own just you know, experience and observations, uh, and then a lot on sort of stimulated by reading the book. Um, Okay, so failure is a given. It exists in the world. We need some sort of coping mechanisms for the fact that it does exist. And those coping mechanisms, what I want to talk about is how they differ for an individual, a small firm, a startup firm, a successful, well-established firm, and government. And so for the individual, uh, my line is that you... Uh, uh, you need to fail with a fallback position. For a small firm, you need to fail quickly. A large firm needs to fail gracefully. And government, the solution is clinical depression. <laughs> um, so for the individual, the solution is to fail with a fallback position. Yeah, it's fine that your ambition is to make it big on Broadway, but you know, what's your fallback position? And Megan talks about that a lot in the book. Uh, she talks about the process of job searching, how it's more successful if somebody has a bunch of fallback positions. Well, if I can't get a job here or in this field, I'll get a job there or in that field. Uh, she talks about, as she alluded to in her talk, uh, debt and bankruptcy. And you know, for an individual, you have a you're more likely to have a fallback position if you're living within your means. So if you're saving rather than getting into debt, uh, you're more likely to survive the loss of a job or a, an illness or something. So uh, saving and living within your means in some sense helps create a fallback position. Uh, and then the bankruptcy laws, uh, by being relatively lax, give entrepreneurs and other people who take risks, it gives them a, a fallback position. For a small firm, I say the key is to fail quickly. Uh, you know, think of, your, of a small firm as kind of like a stand-up comic, and if the audience doesn't respond, you don't wait for them to laugh. You go on and tell the next joke. And the, um, for a small firm, like let's say, you, let's say you're going to launch a product, and it'll turn out that the market once the market sees it, you've got to completely re, uh, rethink your concept. Better to find that out after you've scratched out a three-month prototype than after you spent two years in stealth mode sweating all the details. Or let's say you're trying to sell to a big company, and they'll give you the corporate practice scope. They'll send out you know, 15 non-decision makers to meet with all your top executives for hours asking you, you know, well, is it... Uh, is it compliant with this? Is it compatible with that? You know, investigating, analyzing, and so on. You've got to decide right away whether this process is going to end in a sale or not. And if you don't think it is going to end in a sale, you've got to cut it off, take, accept that right now, fail now, not drag it out for six months. So small firm, you've got to fail quickly. Large firm, I think you have to fail gracefully. And what I mean by that is fail in such a way that you learn something uh, but that you don't uh, cause major damage to the company. So in some ways, you could think of New Coke as a graceful failure. 
because you know, they didn't wreck the company, they learned something. You could think of the Edsel as a graceful failure. Again, you know, Ford you know, still in business. But actually, most graceful failures are failures that you don't even see. You don't even hear about them. Uh, let me tell you a couple that were from uh, Freddie Mac in the late 1980s when I was there. Um, about a year after I was there, we looking at our multifamily lending program. It turns out in the multifamily lending business, there are, there's a small segment of the, of the market of borrowers who uh, go out and buy apartment buildings in low-income neighborhoods, take out huge mortgages, put that money in the bank, do zero maintenance, and then hand the keys to the lender. And Freddie Mac had found that segment of the market. <laughs> um, and you know, we, it took us, so all we saw, were, we were getting a lot of defaults. And so the, the, the executive shut the, the uh, program down and tried to, you know, and eventually figured out what they were doing wrong and then started it up again when, you know, when they, they could do it better. Um, another example of, a, you know, and so they, they did that without killing the company. And they, another example of a graceful failure was uh, there was a big move in the, around 1989, 1990 for low documentation lending. People said, hey, you, know, you, don't, you don't need all these uh, documents to support, in, verify income, employment, and so on. Uh, we'll sell, we can sell you loans without them, and they'll, they'll do fine. And, and all right, we said, okay, we'll try it. And uh, we got just the worst, most embarrassing forms of fraud losses that you could ever see. And so they, you know, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae just sort of created a pact that said, we will not do low doc lending. Uh, so again, it was an example of graceful failure. And, uh, you know, the irony is that uh, the, all the institutional learning that came from that low doc episode was just thrown out by a subsequent CEO who said, I know better, and you guys are, you're a bunch of bureaucrats, you don't know what you're doing, we've got to change the way we operate here. Um, and you know, history is what it is. Um, so again, so a large firm, you want to fail gracefully. And part of doing that is being very selective about the projects you take on. So uh, I'm not a CEO cultist, but I, I did once read a biography of Jack Welch. And, and it's amazing what a sequence of accurate decisions he made. And part of his philosophy was if we're not in the top, if we can't be in the top one or two companies in any business, we're not going to go into that business. Uh, that's a very careful, selective policy. Um, so being careful about what you choose to do, being careful about your decisions, and then executing really well uh, is a good way for a big firm to only fail gracefully. And then as, as Megan points out, the the use of iteration and small trials rather than doing things in one, uh, in one big swoop. Um, this is maybe rambling a bit, but uh, Clay Shirky the other day wrote something about uh, you know, contrasting how Obamacare was put together with how NASA put together the flight on the moon. He made the point that NASA did a bunch of small-scale things first and, and experienced a bunch of failures before they ever sent a spaceship to the moon. And uh, so they actually followed an, an iterative and experimental process uh, in putting that together. 
so that, that's all part of the, uh, the failing gracefully. Now finally, government, and I say uh, uh, clinical depression is the solution for government. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, I, I took that out, out of Megan's book. She has a, a sentence that goes something like this. Uh, there is a scientific name for having a realistic view of your talents, uh, attractiveness, and abilities, uh, and, and that is clinical depression. Uh, you know, the, the, there's this phrase, depressive realism. Apparently, you know, most of us walk around, it's clearly true, with an inflated view of ourselves and our, and our abilities. Uh, and uh, so people who actually are realistic, uh, they, they're diagnosed with depressive realism. And I think that's the only solution for government, because government does not have the other capabilities. Government does not have fallback positions. I mean, just as, as I do this, think through Obamacare. You know, do, do they have a fallback position there? Um, they do not have the ability to fail quickly. It just drags out and on and on. And they do not have the ability to fail gracefully. I mean, part of the ability to fail gracefully, and it comes from admitting that you failed. Uh, she tells the story of Dan Rather and Mary Mapes and CBS News putting out a story based on a forged document. And they could not fail gracefully after that. They insisted that that, that story was OK. They, they reenacted the Monty Python pet shop scene. You know, the, you know no, the parrot's not dead. It's resting. You know, they kept insisting that the, the story was OK. And if you do that, uh, you will not fail gracefully. And government, you know, Kathleen, listen to Kathleen Sebelius talk about uh, Obamacare, and you realize that, you know, again, it's the Monty Python uh, pet shop scene being reenacted. So government doesn't have any of these other coping mechanisms, and I think the only coping mechanism that works is depressive realism. An example of that, um, you know, sort of one of the, the great failures in this country was, of course, uh, Vietnam. And our military are probably better at facing up to failure than any other institution in government. I mean, there's something about war that you know, makes people confront reality. So generals get sacked during war, uh, during training. You know, somebody would say, Corporal, you, if this had been a real fight, you'd have just lost your squad. I mean, people will, people will talk about failure, and they'll study failure uh, in the military. Um, and in 1954, the US had a golden opportunity, quote unquote, to uh, enter Vietnam after the, the uh, French lost a battle at Dien Bien Phu. And General Matt Ridgway uh, said, well, you know, if we intervene, it'll take several hundred thousand troops, and even then, I don't know if it'll work. And President Eisenhower said, that doesn't sound like a, like a good thing to do. Um, unfortunately, 10 years later, we had people who had the opposite of depressive realism. Uh, we had people who uh, believed their own uh, biographies, uh, people like Robert McNamara and George Bundy, and well, we went plunging into Vietnam. So. Um, you know, I think, in some sense, what, uh, what libertarians can contribute to, uh, to government is some kind of depressive realism. If we can somehow uh, 
keep talking about the reality of what government's trying to do and what actually happens uh, and try to get away from the, uh, the more romantic beliefs about what government does. Thank you. Thank you. That was, that was really um, insightful. Um, if, if I'm, before we open it up for general discussion, it might be um, worthwhile to ask Megan what she thinks the sort of um, policy angle that her book brings is. Because clearly, um, probably the, the most wonderful feature of the book is that it's, 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 it's in fact, multiple books in one. It's, it's a self-help book, it's a book of business journalism, and it's also a, 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 a policy book. Um, and given that we are at Cato, it would be good if, if we sort of uh, went through the details of what the implications of what you offer us are, other than just being you know, cynical about policy, because that's what most of us are anyway. Right, so I think there's two sets of policy implications in the book. And the first is direct policies about things that fail. So um, I have a chapter on bankruptcy and the reasons why I think that lax bankruptcy is something that we should preserve and extend rather than... Um, I have a chapter on, on probation and some uh, really exciting work that is being done in Hawaii and now uh, being replicated nationwide on how to make probation work better. and and. It's interesting because it's neither a liberal nor a conservative solution exactly. It's the answer is more punishment, but lighter punishment and certain rather than like nothing, 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 bam, five, ten years in prison. Little like three days in jail when whenever you violate probation, they've cut their they've cut the number of people they send to prison in half uh, just by doing this consistently and actually managing it. So those sets of policy things is I like to go back to how do we think about how should how should failure hurt like there's a very specific way that it should hurt which is that it should be consistent it should be short it should be sharp and it should encourage people to move on and to be restored to society rather than segmenting them off or, or pulling them out in some way um, the other and you will not be surprised to learn that I absolutely agree with Arnold like government government goes big but it never goes home right I mean they <laughs> You, you see this over and over and over again. Um, Head Start's a good example. You have a tiny pilot program. It works really well. What we should do is put eight, 16 million people in this and then never end it because those 16 million people would get really mad. Uh, I actually don't know the numbers in Head Start. I think it's probably more like 4 million. But anyway, um, the, but those, those sorts of programs, that we had, we had, it worked really well with 250 people, so let's just scale it up to a few million and... And, and it should work just the same. And of course it doesn't. And it doesn't work sometimes because a test on 250 people was just a spurious result, right? If you put a, take a group of 250 people and run them through an obstacle course, they may get better at, like they may do better on calculus tests than the group that didn't run the obstacle course. And that does not mean that running obstacle courses is good for your calculus skills. It may just be that on that day you grabbed a group of people who are especially good at math, right? Um, but it's also because lots of things don't scale. <laughs> Right, there are lots of, and the example I always give is if you think about trying to organize lunch with three friends or then trying to organize a charity benefit dinner for a thousand people, you wouldn't use the same method, right? You don't email all thousand people and say, hey guys, where would you like to eat and <laughs> who wants what and what's a good time for you, right? That would be crazy. Things that work well in small groups just often don't work in, in big groups 
for a lot of reasons, right? You, you, for one thing, a lot of these pilot programs, they have this tiny group of incredibly dedicated people who are the top people in their field, which is why they're academics who are studying this problem. And then you scale that out and you have to use normal people who just want to go to work for, from nine to five and then go home and it doesn't work. Or you can't find the number of qualified people with those Head Start pilot projects. I mean, you had everyone had an advanced degree and at least a bachelor's and often an advanced degree in early childhood education. You don't have millions of people who can be Head Start teachers who, who meet those qualifications um, or who want to meet those qualifications in order to become Head Start teachers. Um, and so on and so forth. It's just that things that you can that actually do work in a very small group with a highly dedicated team of extremely excellent people just don't necessarily scale when they're going into an existing organization. So I talk in the book about actually uh, the LA school lunch program, which worked great in pilot. And then like all the kids, it was all healthy and the kids loved it. And then they were just all bringing Cheetos to school. Uh, so they had actually gone from bad to worse in terms of actual childhood nutrition. Why did that fail? And um, the problem with government is that it doesn't, it's, it's not even that it doesn't fail gracefully, it doesn't fail in the sense that it stops. It just, there is nothing as immortal as a government program. And so when things don't work, with some exceptions, right, we eventually pulled out of Iraq and Vietnam. Um, we eventually, with military things, eventually, you know, because people are dying, we will stop them if they don't work. Uh, but with most things, what's it like the telephone tax that was put into place to finance the Spanish-American War? Did they even get rid of that yet? Or is that still, yeah, no. Um, all of those things, these programs that just, they live forever. And that's terrible because first of all, I mean, there are some things the government should do. I'm not an anarchist. Um, having all of this money spent and effort and attention spent on things that don't work means that the few things that government's really good at and should be doing, they're not doing because they're spending all of their time worrying about like, you know, some program for, uh, as P.J. Rourke says, you know, self-esteem and debutantes or whatever the, um, but also because if, even if you want the government to do something, you want it to do it well. And because people can't get fired and the programs can't end because even if they're terrible and don't do what they're supposed to, they now have some constituency of people who are getting paid for doing this. It's almost impossible to end them which means that we do a bunch of stuff that we say we're doing something and we're not achieving the goal, we're just doing something. Um, and it's really destructive. That's a problem that I don't know how to solve, right? I mean, I think that like what you can do is just keep screaming about it and eventually, AFDC was a terrible program that I think was pretty destructive to the communities that it was supposed to be serving. And it did change. Um, so, I mean, there, it, if you scream loud enough and long enough and keep saying this doesn't work, you can make changes. They're really painful and they take forever and it's not nearly as much as it should be, but you can change programs that don't work. You just have to keep saying it over and over and over and over again, and then you're going to get like a tenth of what you actually wanted. Um, but we have to keep screaming because if we don't, they won't change at all. Wonderful. So, um, can I open it? up for questions. Please wait for the microphone and please identify yourselves. Um, the gentleman in the third row. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if you can uh, suggest why it is that government is so risk averse. I mean, if you look at even military procurement where it really, where lives really matter, uh, you find that the, that the, that the research and the early stage, stale, stage development program of any weapon system that you care to mention in, in the last 50 years has taken 
10 or 20 years and gone through immense failure prevention uh, strategies and not so much uh, function, you know, successful function strategies. Uh, what is what is it about that uh, that consciousness that uh, that government seems to have that it does fail all the time, but and it wants to f- to stop it, but can't? Um, there are a lot of answers to that. I mean, one is that it is true that everyone, not just government, are the general attitude towards failure. Right? Is I like there's a Woody Allen quote that I really like, which is uh, it's actually not. It's about death. He says, "I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying." And we sort of feel that way about failure, right? I don't want to achieve success by failing. I want to achieve it by not failing. That would be much better, right? And government embodies that, that idea that it would just be better if nothing ever failed. Um, And in fact, we've given them that job to make sure that nothing ever goes wrong. Um, And since that's not a realistic goal, it causes all sorts of problems. Uh, It's made worse in government now um, in a lot of ways by the way that we treat um, both civil service and um, how we treat government employees, how much discretion we give them. And I actually, um, the optimal amount of abuse in any large institution is not zero. That's not something, that's not a popular thing to say, right? The opt- but it's true, like a bank, a bank security guy will tell you, the optimal amount of bank fraud is not zero because the, the getting the last, you know, whatever it is, out of, getting the last 10% out of the system costs you many, many times what it costs to get the first 90%. Government doesn't think that way. Government, the only thing they care about, the first thing that they care about is not having the appearance of impropriety, right? And so this infects everything. In one story, uh, a guy who was a banker and then went to work for a state government, first day at work, he's in the finance administration, calls the secretary, says, okay, order some sandwiches, we're gonna have a team meeting. So oh, we can't do that. Right? We can't order sandwiches on the government dime only when there's overtime. And he's like, well, I can't pay all these people overtime so that I can give them sandwiches. Right? This is ridiculous. And so finally he just bought the sandwiches out of his savings from being a, a bank executive. Um, that's an absurd way to treat civil servants. Right? Like, you know, as a libertarian, I, I, I have a lot of non-fond words for government. But like, the right way to treat civil servants is accountability. But we have to treat them this way because we can't fire them. So it's this, it's this chain of, well, since we can't fire them we, and we don't have any accountability, we need this incredibly elaborate system designed to, uh, to ensure that they have no discretion whatsoever. And so government contracting is a really good example of this, right? It's the, the way that it works is crazy. You get no points for being a reliable person that the agency has been working for with for like 40 years and always delivering a good product, because who the hell cares about that? Low bid, right? And no private corporation would do this. No private corporation would be like, well, this guy f***ed up the job. Like, excuse me, that was on, that was on the internet, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Failing gracefully. Okay, so <laughs> um, the guy screwed up the job the last six times, but he is the low bid. Let's hire him again, right? But like the, the and the, I mean, they do eventually stop, but the way that they, that whole everything is, there's all these rules that must be complied with to avoid any appearance of impropriety, no discretion whatsoever, and like that takes a really, really long time. It would be a lot better if we made it more possible to fire people. Put more, and maybe the answer is put more people in political appointee roles. That has its own issues, but at least then you could say, okay, well, this guy did something. I don't like it. We're going to sack him, rather than saying, okay, this guy's going to spend the next five years filling out forms so that maybe in another 10 years he could eventually do something. 
And Arnold, though, who is, may, may have uh, yeah, something to add to that. Yeah, my, my perspective is, my, my first thought is, I'm not sure I want government to be risk averse. My notion of clinical depression is I do want it to be risk averse. I think the problem with government uh, sort of making decisions that, you know, wind up, you know, you're spending a long time making, making decisions that they could have made more quickly uh, and perhaps better. Uh, the problem is that the government is, is not that it's unusually risk averse. Government, think of government as a member of the species of large organizations. And what's unique about government isn't that it's more risk averse than other large organizations, it's that it's a monopoly. And because it's monopoly, uh, when it does make m mistakes, it doesn't learn from them, and it doesn't go out of businesses that, that it should go out of. So large organizations, I think, are rationally risk averse, and I think they rationally uh, deny their middle managers what the Fast Company magazine wants to give them, which is more opportunities to take risk. Because if you're a middle manager at a large company, you're taking risks with other people's money. And so you know, you would love it to get, you know, I want a bigger share of the upside, and I don't want to be punished if, if my idea goes wrong. And that sounds wonderful, except you know, you're working with other people's money, with shareholders' money. I want to invest $10 million in this idea. Uh, and in government, you've got that same issue. You people are spending other people's money. And to take risks with that, you know, you want to have a bureaucracy that constrains that. Certainly private firms do. Um, so you'll observe private firms not handle risky situations well, typically. The most common one is, you know, someone is coming along and just pulling the rug out from under their business. So that happened to IBM in the, in the 1980s. And they, amazingly enough, uh, took the risk of developing a PC. They didn't quite get, get the business strategy right. They got outfoxed by Bill Gates, but they did pretty well with that. And they also glided over into uh, consulting services. So I just was on the subway today coming here, and there was somebody with a backpack that said IBM Consulting Services on the back of it. So they're, st they're still around. They did a lot better at dealing with the pulling the rug out of your business than Blockbuster did or Tower Records did or so on. But I think the blockbuster and the Tower Records thing, that's probably going to be more the norm. It's very hard in large organizations to take big risks and to take them well. Uh, the bureaucracy is there to constrain risk, and I think that, in general, is it protects shareholders. I think bureaucracy and corporations evolved for, for a good reason, and risk aversion evolved for a good reason. So I'm not sure that what I want to see from government is less risk aversion. I'd like them to see ideally a lot of humility and saying maybe we can't build an insurance brokerage a health insurance brokerage from scratch and have it be work as well as as a company that have evolved out of thousands and thousands of other failures in the market yes please uh, 
Hi. Um, I, I just had a question about it. I really enjoyed the book. Uh, that was a great read. Um, I did have one question, though, about uh, the bankruptcy section, because you talk, uh, I know you're very you know, pro-American system of bankruptcy, but you also talk about all the abuses in Nashville and about how it gets used probably a little bit too much. And you talked about also formally thinking of, of, of the um, of bank, uh, bankruptcy reform as draconian. Uh, have, are there, is there a completely ideal one or uh, system, or is there a way to avoid some of the abuses that you saw in, while at the same time fundamentally maintaining um, the benefits of bankruptcy? Did, have you, what's your current thinking on that? I would go back to saying that I think the optimal level of abuse in the system is not zero. And we tend to focus on the abuse because it's like this deep reptilian part of our brain that is on the lookout for shirkers in our little band. Um, and that we focus on the abuse and we don't focus on, okay, well, what are the costs of that? And if you look at pre, pre-reform, where there was more abuse, I mean, I, I think um, Todd Zawicki, who does it with Mercatus, who does a lot of work on this, is we disagreed about the bankruptcy reform. I still disagree with him, but he was right about one thing, which was that post-reform, the number of people who had declared bankruptcy went down, which meant that there were people who could get by without it and were using it. Um, however... Uh, that said, uh, the cost is that if you looked at, at the credit markets in 2005, if bankruptcy abuse were a huge problem that was really creating issues, what would I have expected to see? Banks wouldn't want to lend money. That was not the problem we had in 2005, <laughs> right? Like, I don't think anyone in this room is like, damn, I just wish the banks had been lending people more people money so that they could get like 300% of their household income into debt instead of 287. Um, and so given that, I look, I look at the level of, when the level of abuse starts causing serious problems with credit availability, then I get worried. But right now it's, it's still not. Um, and judges have more discretion than you think. Like if the, if, if the judge really thinks that you're being abusive in that they really, there, there used to be people who would do things like go rent a fancy apartment and not pay the rent and then do this in New York so it's really hard to get evicted. And then just when they were about to be evicted, they'd file a chapter 13. And then they'd drop the chapter 13 and the whole process would start over and over again. So that has been, that has been fixed in the law. Um, and in general, with the so I asked the judges about this specific thing because there was a ban on refilings and it appears that the judges aren't honoring it. So I asked one of the judges that she said, no one's complaining. <laughs> that ultimately the creditors would rather be getting a check from the bankruptcy trustee than trying to hunt down the people in 13 to get it. And so even in the system, which is like the worst, and that's the reason I went there, is this is the bankruptcy capital for those who haven't read the book. Um, Memphis is the bankruptcy capital of the world. Uh, because it's the bankruptcy capital of the United States, which is totally the bankruptcy capital of the world by a large margin. Um, and there, there, I, I'm sure there are people there who are irresponsible and just think, well, I'll just go to court. And, you know, and, and they're not being as responsible as they could be. But if the cost of that is entrepreneurship, just leave it. right? Like, Don't tinker. Don't, don't fix something that looking at credit markets just does not seem to be broken to me. Hi, I'm wondering what you have to say about unions and whether the role of private sector and government sector unions could change. And during your talk, I just had this mental note said, make sure to ask about Hostess. Hostess was a really interesting case because it, it was talked about in the press as um, 
the, you know, the bakers being irrational and driving the company into bankruptcy while the Teamsters wanted to redo. And like when the Teamsters want to negotiate, that's usually like a banner day because usually they're. Um, but actually, it, it, interestingly, this was about value claiming by different unions. So the bakers knew they could go get new jobs with the new organization and that and the Teamsters had a really rich contract that they wanted to preserve somehow in bankruptcy and that the Teamsters would get hosed. So it was actually a lot of people didn't write about this. My my understanding about how that was actually working was that it was like Mothra v. Godzilla with two fairly powerful unions going at it over the carcass of a company that had a lot of issues. Um, but like fundamentally, right, the right thing happened there. You had a company that was in deep trouble that had been in and out of bankruptcy three times. And in general, I prefer, as the American courts do, reorganization. But then sometimes you get to the end of that and it's just clearly not going to work. But look, the brands are still there. The recipes, are, everyone can still get Twinkies. You did not need to stock up. Um, it kept every, every piece of the company that people wanted is still going. And that is something that, we're, again, like we're really good at this. And you compare this to how um, bankruptcy courts in other countries deal with uh, companies. And this is changing, but it used to be that uh, I used to joke that I didn't know if I wanted my mother or my father to be the person to pull the plug on me before I got married because my dad would like leave me for like 20 years as a vegetable because he wouldn't just just in case. And my mom would be like, she blinked, pull the plug, right? Because <laughs> she's so worried about, um, you don't, like British, European uh, courts tend to be like my mother on bankruptcy. Like they, they, were, they were insolvent for five minutes here. Just sell it off, get the creditors. It's li literally illegal in Britain to run your company in a deficit for even a tiny, tiny period of time. If you are trading while insolvent, like this triggers all sorts of penalties and it's really dangerous. Um, and that's a bad way to think about it and it, it destroys a lot of value. And there's a lot of race to be the first creditor in because you're most likely to get something out of it. Whereas here we kind of stall everyone off and say, let's see if we can't keep the company going. And if not, we'll sell it off in an orderly way. And so ultimately I think, I think Hostess was a success story for bankruptcy. Um, although not for the shareholders of Hostess, obviously. Um, yes, please. Um. Hi, um, I wanted to ask you about uh, Wiffle Parenting and Trophy Kids a little bit. Um, uh, I found that the, the per parenting style that you were describing in that book uh, echoes a lot of what Charles Murray was talking about and coming apart in the way that parents and super zips are uh, educating their kids and raising their kids. And I was thinking 30 years into the future, if we have a generation of government and political leaders who have never failed, that seems to me that there's something almost inimical to uh, Americanness about that because we're, we're so uh, obsessed and rightfully so, as you show in the book, with, with the idea that, that our leaders should have failed at some point. Um, either from a policy point of view or just from a social change point of view, is there anything that can be done to um, kind of whip us out of this idea that that uh, of whipple of whiffle parenting uh, and trophy kids yeah I'm, i am worried that in 30 years like we're gonna have legis legislators who are like let's wrap the entire united states in a thick layer of bubble wrap <laughs> right like um there is this the thing is i i totally understand it right i'm not a parent and so i'm in the i'm in that terrible position of writing about parenting and like you know, telling people who actually ha are in the trenches what they should do while I'm standing looking over the edge and shouting down. But since I'm mostly telling them to like, hey, ease up, it's okay, I feel like, um, rather than telling them how to discipline their, their horrible brats. Um, there is this thing of like, I think the metaphor for this, for those who haven't read the book, is the high monkey bars. 
right? Like when I was a kid, the monkey bars were at least seven feet tall. And I know this because they were above my dad's head and my dad's six foot seven. And there were concrete under them. There was, I think we got a rubber mat when I was like seven or eight. And we remarked upon it at the time because it seemed weird. Um, and it was terrifying. I mean, I still remember, I'm sure many of you do, that feeling of like you would get halfway up and look down and be like, oh my God, and run back down. And like you'd fall a few times and you'd get to the top and it was the best feeling you ever had. And now the monkey bars are all gone, right? They're now like this tall so that if anyone falls, nothing bad happens. And I talked to my friends who have kids about this and you would think from talking to them that the attrition rate in our generation was like 30%, <laughs> right? Like I can't possibly, what if little, what if little junior broke his arm and it would be, um, and it's similarly like they can't let their kids walk to school. Their kids can't have any unstructured time. And yet they're not irrational. Part of it is that we're herd animals and when, especially when you're parenting, the most crazily overprotective parent in the group is going to set the standard because if anything did happen, you would kill yourself if you had not done every single possible thing. If your child was the one child in a million who got abducted and you had allowed them to do exactly what we did, which is bike around and walk home, ourselves home after school and so forth, um, you would feel awful. But it's also that, especially with the education stuff, when I got into Penn in, in 1990, the acceptance rate was about a third. It's now under 10%, and it has, except for Cornell, the highest acceptance rate of any Ivy League school. The number of children that, like, I was in that, the, my parents were both born during World War II, and so I was in that little dip of that, the echo of World War II, basically, and the babies. Um, so there were fewer kids in my class, but there were also, um, there's been population growth, but also people in other, people are more likely to want to send their kids away to school if they're upper middle class. And so the number of slots in these elite schools basically not grown. So you're now trying to get your kids into the college you went to, except they're competing with 50 to 70% or more, more kids than you were competing with when you went to that same school. At the same time, the premium on a college degree has increased. Um, the premium on a selective college degree has increased even more. It's not irrational what they're doing, but as a society, it is crazy. They are micromanaging their kids and to the point where they don't have any, like the feeling that you have to micromanage your kids with three travel teams by the time they're in eighth grade, because God knows if they haven't done that by eighth grade, they're not gonna have found a passion for their Harvard application, right? And they can't possibly have any unscheduled time because if they do, then something might derail them we're trying to push all the more kids through this time, the funnel that's exactly the same size. Um, you have to micromanage their grades. People are doing homework for them. At, at the private school I went to in New York City, they're now struggling with tutors. I mean, it's not just the private school. Every public private school in New York City is apparently struggling with tutors who do the kids' work for them. Um, like, this was unthinkable when I was in school. Our parents were in league with the teachers, not us. It was very clear. The, the lines were drawn, we knew exactly who was on each side. Um, but my parents also didn't think that if I didn't go to Penn, that my life would probably end right there and I would be doomed to just mop floors for the rest of my life. And it's not, setting up this credentialing system has made us all insane and it's worse for poor kids and it is, it's bad for the elite kids because it's turning them into risk averse people. And you hear this from employers and I'm generally skeptical of complaining about the next generation and how they aren't as good as we are. In fact, they're harder working than we were by far. <laughs> um, but they've had these such structured and regimented lives that when they get out into the workforce, you really do hear 
employers, including ones who've managed multiple generations, who are not just like, well, five years ago, I was way better than this, saying like they just demand this level of structure that doesn't exist in the real world, and they have a hard time coping with it. Um, but for poor kids, this system is like you have to be naughty a come and eat, right? You better hit a perfect 10 because otherwise you are out of the running entirely. It's, in, it's insane on both ends. And the only answer I have is that employers and college admissions officers have to change the system because the parents don't feel like they can. And the teachers, and the teachers at the high school level who might like to change it know that they will be deluged by every parent in the community if, if little Bobby gets a B instead of an A, it's just all the incentives are on the wrong way and the people who have the controls are the, the employers and the college admissions officers who ask for these completely ridiculous levels of credentialing for jobs that didn't require them 10 years ago and haven't significantly changed since then. Uh, I'll just- Thoughts on parenting and education. Oh, well, okay, so um, I guess I'm not a tiger mother. Um, <laughs> I used to always say as my daughters were growing up, well, if one of them turns out all right, I'll be happy. <laughs> uh, and uh, in some sense, I failed because none of them want to work for a profit. Um, and, uh, but um, I, I have yet to see a good study that really demonstrates that parenting style makes a difference. And until I see that, I'm not going to raise this as one of the panic issues. Lady in the fourth row had a had a question. Thanks. Um, my name is Margaret Newell, and I'm a corporate bankruptcy attorney. So thank you. Good job. <laughs> I love that cheerleading for bankruptcy law. But my question is more to government and change changing policies and changing laws. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about whether there could be some sort of um, change to the process of making laws or regulations that could help um, allow a more iterative process, like for instance, term limits in the you know Congress or something that would bring different people in. Is that better than having long, more long-term senators and congressmen? Or like in agencies, you talked about um, you know people can't be fired, but the truth of the matter is that there are a lot of career employees who are a kind of stable workforce, but the agencies are constantly changing based on the leadership being different because political appointees are constantly making their own, you know, sort of, um, um, you know, name or whatever with completely new policies. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about what would um, improve the iterative process in government because maybe there's a chance that they could do things without, you know... Uh, failing or with fail, you're incorporated in. Um, I, you know, I think there's always a trade-off between institutional memory and especially in the political system where it's not like a corporation where if the CEO does a bad job, they fire him and then you get new regime. Like now it's like just every four years randomly we get a new person, right? It's not, um, and that's not on any particular schedule that's good for the agency. Um, I do think that we could, but we would have to have a real commitment to doing it. And there, there are trade-offs. Like you talk to, so when you talk to a lot of liberals who wanted Obama to be like FBR, FDR, right? Giants work pro, works programs and so forth. And then you say, well, how would you do that? 
how would you do all these giant infrastructure programs? Since FDR, we now have all these environmental review laws and so forth. And you describe to them, they're like, we need to speed this up. And then you describe to them the things that are in the way, and they don't want to get rid of any of those things. But they also want to speed it up. Um, and that's like a kind of fundamental problem, which is that all of the things that would speed it up are things like, um, on the one hand, removing some of the civil service protections. On the other hand, offering more discretion. No one wants to do that, right? The, the agency employees would love more discretion, but they would freak if you tried to pull their service and, and vice versa on the reformers who would who want to fire them but wouldn't then want to give them the power to do more. Um, we have to pick one. We've picked, you know, and if what we want is a, an institution that doesn't do much well but does a lot of stuff, we have picked that. Um, if we want to change it, we have to say, okay, well, we're going to do more accountability and discretion or we're you know, you have to actually, and we're going to get rid of environmental review or we're going to tone it down. We're going to limit the ability for community review and the community review is that they can unelect the people who did this if they don't like it, or we're going to devolve it down to the state level. You have to pick something. And the fundamental problem is that we're not. We mostly just say like, I would like all of these wonderful things to happen at ice cream and free ice cream cones. And then none of the things happen. We don't have any free ice cream. And you know, like, the first step, I think, is recognizing that there are direct trade-offs in wanting to make government fail better and accepting that those trade-offs exist and being conscious that like, there is no perfect system where we're going to get more failure and not more unhappy people. So, my The only institutional reform that I'm passionate about is radical decentralization. I just don't think Washington is fixable. Uh, I look around the world, and whether you measure using the um, uh, economic freedom of the world index, or which is sort of you know something that right wingers might like, or the human development index, the UN's human development index, whether the, which is something left wingers might like, the countries that are floating to the top of that are all pretty small countries, um, you know Switzerland, Singapore, what have you. Um, we're lucky, I think, that the country isn't a bigger mess than it is, given how much we try to do at essentially the 300 million population level. Uh, so I, I think the, the advantage, you know, advantage of radical decentralization is that uh, it would make it pe for people to vote with their feet to, uh, you know, to get better policies, which I think it, it would probably be more effective. Um, you would, could get naturally more experimentation, trial and error, learning from others. I mean, so I think if you think about it, uh, to me, that just seems like the most, if you're going to put your hope on some kind of institutional reform, uh, anything that moves in the radical decentralization direction. Is I would actually also add that we should really be more experimental about how we do policy. And this is, I mean, like, the, the welfare reforms came out of experiments that were done in the 80s and that, that indicated things that could work. Um, and I think about this with Obamacare, where they had all of these pilot projects in it um, that were supposed to revolutionize things, and they've deliberately chosen not to do RCTs. And 
as, as a friend of mine said, well, you know, there's a problem with RCTs, which is sometimes they tell you that what you're doing doesn't work. Um, so we've gotten rid of that problem by not doing the RCTs. And like they added, Gina Collado of the New York Times asked the guy in charge about this. And he said, well, you know, we can stop doing it if it's not working. Like, have you ever been with the government? Like, have you ever noticed? <laughs> How long have you been in our country and have you had the opportunity to meet any people while you were here? Like, um, and it, that is like the fundamental thing is that policies should be attached to rigorous evaluations and they should be attached to RCTs as much as is feasible. It's not always feasible. Like not every policy can be evaluated by an RCT, but a lot of them can be that aren't. And the reason is that the people who have great hopes for a program don't want it evaluated that way because it's too likely to come back and say, yeah, totally worthless. Well, and in healthcare, maybe the one experiment that exists is the RAND healthcare experiment, which I think would, the conclusions of that, I would read as saying that you should be having consumers pay for a larger share of their healthcare, not a smaller share, as what, which is what the direction the policy is taking. Good. Are there any other questions? Yes, please. Hi. David Merkel. I write the Olive blog. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to talk about a future failure um, that hasn't yet happened. It's the fact that we've made all these healthcare promises, all these pension promises streaming out in the future. Most developed nations have done it. Probably the lowest level of these promises plus government debt relative to the GDP of these economies, the lowest is around 300, and some get all the way up to 1,600%. Um, this reminds me a little bit of the late 1840s, um, where governments were constrained in the amount of uh, borrowing they could do, and the Rothschilds had lent them this much, that much, and they didn't yet have the ability to tax uh, incomes. They were taxing you know, excise taxes, uh, tariffs, et cetera, I don't see how the developed world gets out of that this easily. Um, I mean, there's inflation, there's default, there's an attempt at higher taxes, but as states do that, for, oh, on, on the micro level, moving with your feet, a lot of states are finding that people are leaving, especially Maryland, where I live, millionaires are leaving on net. If something can't go on forever, it will stop, as great economist uh, Herb Stein once remarked, and... I think that we're get, we're seeing that already in public sector pensions, right? I mean, they're getting to the point where some governments just can't pay them. And this is not something I'm rooting for, right? It's not fun to see someone who took a job with the city of Detroit, thought they would be, you know, as one of the conditions that they worked for 30 years, they were supposed to get $20,000 a year in retirement, and they're, they're not going to get that. And that's really sad and not fair. Um, but the promises that we made were not in any way sustainable uh, especially because now what we need is more growth, right? We need the, the economic growth to accelerate because our workforce is shrinking and basically GDP growth is workforce growth plus, uh, plus productivity growth. Um, and instead the problem is that older, an older workforce is likely to go the wrong, the wrong way. They're more conservative. They're more risk averse. It's hard to get a 57 year old to be like, look, this thing could be awesome. Make you really rich in 20 years, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> You're going to have the best nursing home. And um, so, you know, I, I, I don't think that there's any feasible chance that these things will be paid in the way that people are expecting. They may nominally get paid with inflated currency, but some, I think there's going to be some combination of adjustments and it's going to be really painful. And I, like everyone else, I think that the best way to make that adjustment is to confront it right now. And this is like one of the things I say over and over in the book, like 
it's not just about saying, great, go fail. It's also about recognizing that you failed and stopping as fast as possible. And we're not doing that because it's too frightening. And that is a bad move. And I, I have, like many here, have been shouting that we should do something about it. But there does not seem to be a lot of enthusiasm there. Yeah, what's the, I don't know, the, the, one of the Rocky movies where the Rocky's opponent's forecast for the fight is pain. And that's kind of what you, that's the outlook, I think, for our political system for the foreseeable future. I think it's going to play out as a political system that gets more and more afraid, more and more people blaming each other, uh, more and more conflict. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, that, it's going to show up in the, uh, in the political arguments even you know, before there's any you know, sort of sudden financial uh, coming to terms. I think on, on that optimistic note, um, we'll have to... <laughs> we are all doomed. Canned goods and ammunition on sale out in the lobby. <laughs> we'll have to draw the former proceedings uh, to a close. Um, a lunch is served upstairs, and I'm sure Megan and Arnold will, will stick around for a, for a few more minutes, so feel free to approach them, socialize, have your books signed. Um, thank you all for coming, and thank you to our two speakers.